Okay, there is a school of thought in seminaries and theological colleges throughout the world, and it suggests the following. So a lot of uh, seminaries suggest this, that the best way of teaching a section of scripture, like the one that we have here, is for the preacher to first arrive at a summarizing sentence of the purpose of the text. Maybe you see the idea. So a lot of seminaries will say that in sermon preparation, what a preacher should do, if he's going to be really effective in preaching a section of scripture, he should seek to come up with a sentence or a phrase that really encapsulates the meaning or the main message of a portion of scripture. A summarizing sentence. Well, in preparation this week, I have sought to do that and let me lay that before you friend are you asking what this section of scripture is about surely we learn this in Luke 16 that it is a great offense to God to have our hearts set on the wrong things in this life and should that be the case for us that there will be grave consequences in the life to come Is that not what we learn in Luke 16? That is a great offense to our God to have our hearts set on the wrong things as we live here on earth. And should that be the case for us, that there will be grave consequences in the life to come. It's rather solemn, isn't it? Rather somber a thought. But how do we see that here this evening. Well, a number of headings, a number of points tonight. The first thing that I would draw your attention to, the first thing that we see here is that death, it comes to all people. That's the reminder tonight. Death comes to all people. Now, I think it's quite important for us to realize the the context here, as always. Uh, We've got to realize that what we've got in Luke 16 comes at the end of a larger section of scripture where Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees primarily and he's teaching them of the, the errors and the dangers of materialism and gain, financial gain, speaking to the disciples but the Pharisees too about the dangers of material wealth. Now, that to the side, this is what I would love you to do with me just now. Okay, I would love you to note with me the contrast between the two characters we have here. Who do we have? You've got a rich man, okay, and you have a poor man uh, with the name, of course, Lazarus. Now, let's think about the contrast. These men are contrasted in life before us. First of all, contrast their clothing. Would you do it with me? Look at verse 19. Now, you have this rich man. How is he clothed? Do you notice? He's clothed in purple. And I, I, I would imagine most of you are, 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 you've had many years in church and, and you, you look at me and think, we know what that means if he's clothed, clothed in purple. Ah, but let's be very clear about what this means. Now, get this. If you were a rich man in the ancient world, in the first century world, you would have wandered around in Jerusalem wearing white. White was a almost a a sign of your status and your wealth in the ancient world. Ah, But if you could afford purple dye, well, you were even a cut above that. Like to wear purple linen 
Man, you weren't just wealthy. You were in the upper echelons. You were a man of status and purpose. Do you already see what God is teaching us about this man? He wasn't just wealthy. He was loaded, this man, you see. And then, contrast that with the poor man. Would you look at the text? How is he dressed? Look at verse 20. And you're going to look and you're going to look and you're going to say, but we're not told. Oh, but we are. How is he dressed? This man is so poor and impoverished. He is clothed in sores. Isn't he so poor, so impoverished that this is a man who is covered from head to toe in horrible ulcers, sores that even these dogs that would scavenge for food on the outskirts of towns in the Middle East. Savage dogs. They come and they lick these doors. Do you see already? Do you see it? Rich, poor, a man in purple, a man in sores. What a contrast here. Then move on. Contrast next. The food that these men have. There is a fable, there's a story that's often told of King Agrippa. If you know your Bible, you will have heard of King Agrippa. And there is a story that King Agrippa did not just like to eat. That King Agrippa used to like to have a banquet every single day of his life. I don't know what you think of the sounds of that. You know, I don't know what it was. Ben and Jerry's every day or all this pork and beef. The whole thing. Huge big banquet. And isn't that the idea you have with this rich man did you notice he is not just a man who feasts he's not just got an abundance of food this is a man who feasts and every single day it's a banquet daily for this man and again friend please consider the impoverishment of Lazarus because look at the text look at verse 21 and what do you think his situation is Do you think his situation is that he eats the scraps from his master's table? Is that what you've read? Because that's not what the text says. The text says that that's what he desired to do. That seeing the black bags of rubbish thrown away from the banquet, that that for him to get just a tiny morsel of that, that was best case scenario for this man. Do you see his wretched state and impoverishment? And then we conclude, suppose this contrast by considering where these two men lived, their abode. Because a lot, I'm sure you know, a lot is made here of the gate. And we hear a lot about the gate, don't we, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And we've got to be clear about what the gate is. Well, in the ancient world, the gate, as you can imagine, was this huge type of ornate passageway. A gateway, elaborate, beautiful, massive gateway that very often led to a compound or a mansion house. So you see this this man, he has a palace to live in. But then do you see Lazarus? And did you notice the tents? Look at the tents here in verse 20. He's not just at the gate, he is laid at the gate. And it's very passive. 
Isn't it as though he's, he has been laid at the gate, as though perhaps this man was so impoverished that he cannot walk, that he's a cripple. Do, do, do you see, are you with me here? What a contrast. I mean, this is rich and poor. This is chalk and cheese. These, these men are poles apart, and we're saying these men, will, they have nothing in common, and they will never have anything in common. Aren't we saying that of these men? And if we're saying that... How wrong we are. Because what happens to the poor man? You say to me, he dies, he dies in his impoverishment, in his, his hunger, he passes away. Yes? But look at that striking phrase, halfway through verse 22. Look what it said. Please read it. Look, halfway through verse 22, we are told, the poor man is dead, the rich man He also died. And isn't that the truth for you tonight? Isn't that what's happening? Isn't God this evening reminding you that regardless of our status, regardless of our wealth and our manner of living, all people cease to breathe. We cease to move. We we are all going to die. And maybe you, you, you look at me tonight and you think, well, that sounds too simplistic. Is that it? A reminder from God that, that we're going to die, that all of these people in London this evening are going to pass away. Is that it? Isn't that too simplistic? And I say back to you, is it though? The English bishop, a man called J.C. Ryle, he said this, that death is the great fact all people seem to acknowledge. But death is the fact that few people seem to realize. And isn't that the case for our culture this evening? That people are today in London living in this practical denial of their mortality? Isn't that right? People not believing that they're going to... Yes, they know with their heads. Of course they know with their heads that they are going to die. But do they really believe it? And you need to understand that the society in which you live, it seems to be believing that first lie of Satan. Remember Satan says to Adam and Eve, what? You shall not surely die. And that lie seems to have drip fed into all of subsequent humanity. People today not believing this truth. And we as Christians, we must stand apart. It is imperative that you, Christian friend, you live in the full light of the knowledge that you are soon to die. And live in the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has removed death's sting. And tonight, if you go from here and you live your life in the knowledge of your impending death, I think two things will happen. One, you will live with greater zeal in the time you have left for the Lord Jesus Christ. But two, if you live in light of death, surely we go from here with a greater sense of urgency for London and for the people who are soon to die and face the condemnation and judgment of Almighty God. We see here tonight that death comes to all. 
The second thing that we see here this evening is that there are different destinies after death. There are different destinies after death. Now, if you are with me, if you are in agreement with our earlier assessment, what was the assessment? That in life, these two men are greatly contrasted, the rich man and life. If you agree with that, then surely you would also agree with what I'm going to say here, that in death, there is an even greater contrast between these two men, isn't there? Let's take them one by one. What happens to the poor man in death? Would you look to verse 22? What happens to him? Now, we are told immediately upon death that the poor man is quite something, isn't it? Isn't it? He is carried away by angels in death. Isn't that something? That he dies and he is transported by angelic beings. And I have lingered on that a lot this week. And I say to you, if you're a Christian and if you're in Christ, and if truth be told, you are scared of dying... And if you're a Christian and, and, and you are tonight fearing death, don't you hear what God is saying in, in that portrait there? That as soon as your eyes close in death and as soon as your heart stops beating and, and that nanosecond, what happens? You experience the most intense sense of divine care and attention in that nanosecond of your death. But actually, is it not even more intriguing to see where the angels take Lazarus? Do you see? He's taken, transported by these angelic beings and taken to Abraham's side. And what's the question we ask there? Of all people, why Abraham? Why is he trans- transported to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side? Well, understand this, that in Luke's gospel... The poor are very often associated with piety. Do you understand? That the poor in Luke's gospel, there is this theme throughout the book, the poor are those who trust in God, who believe in God. Do you see why he's at Abraham's side? Because Lazarus, friends, believes and he trusts in God. And I long for you to read that and understand it in its context. Because if you know Luke's gospel, what's happened What is the picture just a page or two before Luke has shown us Abraham? And where is he? He is reclining at the heavenly feast. He is reclining at the heavenly banquet. Do you see the joy for Lazarus? This formerly impoverished man in life and death. Where is he? He is feasting and feasting before the God that he loves. What a picture of glory for us. Then, if we have considered this, we must also consider the rich man in death. One writer says this. He says that these here in front of you, friends, are some of the most awful words ever written. And I think if your eye goes to the first three words of verse 23, I think you'll see that that man was... Bang on. What are the first three words of verse 23? And in 
Hades. That the eternal destiny of this previously wealthy man is what? It is the spiritual impoverishment of hell itself. And I'm asking you this, what in this passage do we learn of hell? And I'll answer it myself. We learn nothing good. We learn here, Hades, a place of ongoing torment. A place where pain never ends. If you look at verse 4, you see it is a place of flames and fire that bring nothing but anguish. And aren't you asking a question? We see this picture and we're asking, well, what is his sin then? Like to deserve all of this anguish and flames and the fires of gain. Now what is he, what is at the core of his guilt and his sin? And I think you get a hint, an insight into that from the request that he has. Look at the rich man's request in verse 24. What does he ask for? What does he need? He needs water. Listen. That the reality of hell is a ferocious and unquenchable thirst. There is a ferocious thirst in hell. An unquenchable thirst in hell. But here's the thing. From whom does he want the water? Who does he want to fetch the water? Do you see it? Who does he want to go? He wants Lazarus to go. And do you know the point here making? He mentions him by name. Do you see it? He knew this man. He knew this poor man at his gate. He knew all about him. He knew his name even. Do you see what Jesus is saying? That this poor man, that he was a wretch and this rich man should have cared for him. That he should be much less caring of his own success and advance and prosperity. And caring much more for the honor of God by meeting the need of this man at his door. And I think if you're a Christian tonight, surely that is a challenge for us. God's saying to us from his word that he is pleased when his people care for those in need. That let us not dare to turn this into a moralistic tale. Because what is at the core of this man's sin? It is sheer unbelief. This before you is a man who trusted in riches and not a redeemer from sin. He trusted in his savings and he trusted not in the glorious saviour that had come into the world Why did this man end up in Hades? Because he was outside of Christ. And thirdly, we see this. The destinations after death are forever fixed. The destinations after death are forever fixed. And here, let's return to this request. So we know where we are, do we? This man in hell, thirsting, dry, desperate for water, and he calls out 
for refreshment. Now, notice almost as an aside, would you, how this man asks for water. Now, we've noticed that he asks that Lazarus go and fetch the water for him. Does he ask Lazarus for the water? Did you notice? You notice what he does? He doesn't speak to Lazarus. He speaks to Abraham. Like it's almost as though in hell itself, this man still thinks that speaking to this impoverished man is beneath him. Isn't it almost as though in hell, even in the fires of hell, that the ungodly are going to get no respite from sin? Pride continues. Pride is the atmosphere of hell. But surely you notice this, that Abraham refuses the request for water. And he does so, if you noticed, on Two grounds, two bases. First of all, he refuses any refreshment for this man based on the man, the rich man's life. Now, everyone, would you look at verse 25, please? Have a look at verse 25. Listen to the remarkable words. Here is the patriarch Abraham in glory speaking. What words he says to the rich man. Remember... That in your lifetime you received the good things and Lazarus, eh, eh, the bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. Now do you hear the message from Abraham to this man? The patriarch is saying to this man, you've had what you wanted. Like your heart desired wealth. It desired material things. You've had it. You've had what your heart wanted. Now you have to live with the consequences. But this man, Lazarus, he is now getting what he desired. He desired God and now he is in the presence of the Almighty. But then there is the second basis for refusing this water. And I tell you this, I believe this to be the main message of this portion of scripture. Look at it in verse 26. The man is thirsting. He is desperate for a drop of water. Abraham refuses and says from heaven to hell, even if I could give you water, even if I wanted to rather, I couldn't. Do you see Abraham speaks of a chasm. He speaks of a of a, an expanse. He speaks of a canyon that exists between heaven and hell. And surely that is one of the primary lessons of Luke chapter 16. The reality, friend, that the eternal destinations are set. The reality that there is no movement and transfer in the afterlife from heaven to hell. That how we live, how you live in this life now, determines a set eternal destiny. No movement between heaven and hell in the afterlife. And do you know what we could do just now? <laughs> we could... Unpack how that destroys Catholic doctrine. Can we? No movement between heaven and hell. No movement in the afterlife. That destroys purgatory. That destroys limbo. We could linger on that. But isn't there something pressing tonight? Because I have to ask you, what about you? 
really you tonight? Like, what are you hoping for when you die? Surely tonight you've been reminded that this is coming to you. This is not a fable. This is not make-believe. This is, you're dying. And, And so, what do you hope to happen? Do you think and hope that somehow when you die, that God will just overlook your sin and your trespass and your offense against him? Just that wishful thinking outside of Christ that he's just going to be, yeah, God, God's bound just to, to overlook my transgression. Is that your hope? I mean, are you, are you hoping that God might give you a row, a rebuke, and then just usher you into glory? Outside of Christ, I hope you see tonight and hear that that is not the case. Please listen, friend. One day, every one of us individually is going to stand before our maker. And all the stuff that we have will have vanished. And you're the riches and we're, we're all working hard for money and trying to eke out a life and a living, aren't we? Some trying to save for houses and cars and holidays. And One day, all of that goes. Everything goes. Your relationships that you have just now, all of them... They are unimportant as you stand before your maker. And the only thing at that moment that will count is your heart and where you have put your trust in this life. And I say this to you, and there's no joy in me saying this to you tonight. But if you're found on that moment in death and you have not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in this life, I was going to say, you will go to hell. That is not the message of this text. On that day, if you are found outside of Christ, you will go to hell forever. And then we end with a fourth thing. You learn here that deniers of God are stubborn in the extreme. Now you can see how this section of scripture ends, can you? He's thirsting, but he knows he can't get any water. It is an impossibility. So the rich man now turns to a new plea. And do you see what he asks? He asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth. Send him to my father's house, he says. Do you see what he's after? He's got brothers. And he's scared that these brothers will meet the same fate. Send Lazarus that they might be turned from their materialism to faith. Now again, amazingly perhaps, Abraham rejects this request. And do you know what happens as we end here? God teaches us two things in Abraham's words. You ready for them? Two things. One, he teaches us that the Bible has everything you need to know to avoid eternal damnation and punishment. Look what Abraham says in verse 29. He says, I'm not sending Lazarus back. These men have, what? Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, are you tonight fearing? Are you outside of Christ? Abraham, God tonight saying to you, look to the Bible. The Bible is everything you need to know for eternal life. I wish you'd rejoice in that. But there's a second lesson. 
We see here that the ungodly are often, friends, they are entrenched and they are stuck in their unbelief. Please understand that what I see next, I see with, with, with reverence. In a sense, doesn't your heart go out to the rich man? Is it the case that this rich man in the fires of hell has more evangelistic concern than we do? In the fires of hell, this man is desperate for the salvation of the lost of his brothers. And you can hear him in his anguish and his pain and he's crying out, Oh, please, Abraham, you're saying no to my request, but please send it back. Please send Lazarus back. These, these men are going to perish. Like me, please send him back. If they see something supernatural, like if they see Lazarus return from the dead, they're, they're bound to change. They're bound to trust in, in God. And again, what does Abraham do? He confirms, listen, he confirms, no, I'm not sending Lazarus because what? Even if they see a resurrected man, they will not believe. And as dark as that is, there's encouragement there for you. Because we're hard on ourselves in evangelism often, aren't we? And we beat ourselves up, don't we? And we think, if only I was more eloquent and winsome, then people would be one for the Lord Jesus Christ. And only if I could proclaim the gospel in a, a more winsome way, convincing way, then maybe people would be one from this darkness and condemnation. And what does God say to us tonight? He says it's not about eloquence. That's not about people having a lack of information at their fingertips. It's that so often the lost put their trust and hope and desires in the wrong things. They want riches. They want earthly things. And they do not want this God of glory and grace. And if you will allow me to do this, I will close with this. If you're a Christian in here tonight, surely you see the, the message and the challenge of this text, do you? Surely tonight we go from here and we begin to assess and pick apart how we're living. I ask you, Christian, do you have a genuine concern for the needy, the needy materially, the needy spiritually? And is your heart set on Jesus? Or are you being distracted into the material things? Or is your heart set on your Savior? Oh, but if you're not a Christian tonight, please listen. Hell is real. And it is awful. And yet what has God done? God in his grace has provided a way out of the fires of hell. A way that even tonight you can have your safety and salvation secured. And I'm asking everyone in here, how has he done it? What has God done? Wait, what was the first reading? What did the Lord Jesus Christ cry out into the darkness of Calvary? What did he cry from the cross? Two words, I first.
Do you see? The Lord Jesus Christ has borne the anguish of hell in the place of his people. He's endured all of that pain and misery that you tonight, through repentance and faith, might be eternally saved. Surely you see it. Surely you see the grace and the goodness of God laying that before you. And surely you come to Christ Jesus this evening. Receive from him the water of life. You come to Christ Jesus tonight and you know this. Your eyes shall close in death. You shall die. But at that moment, you will be transported by the angelic beings. And you will gather with the saints of old. And you will gather at the messianic banquet of the Lord, your God. Friends, let's pray. Lord, we must end this Lord's day basking in the wonder of what was secured for us on Calvary Hill. Lord, we bow, we worship you that Jesus bore our pain, that he bore our guilt, our shame. He took our sin, the Lamb of God slain for his people. Lord, we praise you for your great work, how we long that you would grant life to those who are lost. Lord, hear our prayer as we pray in the matchless name of our Redeemer and King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.